I have been in the last month spending a lot of time in the book of Revelation, and uh, I was reflecting upon why that is. Maybe it's because of my age and uh, whatever, I don't know, but uh, I've really come to appreciate it. I know some of you probably have heard me say before that a particular book is my favorite, and uh, it changes. So today, Revelation is my favorite. And I think it's essential for us today, like the book of Romans was for the Reformation. And you know how important that was when Martin Luther discovered again the gospel message as it's presented in Romans and preached that message and really the, the Reformation growing out of that book, how important Romans was. As important as that was for that day, I think Revelation is for today. With this little addition to my comment, if, if that book is used in a helpful, healthy way. And the jury's still out on that because I'm afraid a lot of what I hear coming from people about the book of Revelation is not helpful, not healthy. They've, they've turned it into kind of a mysterious puzzle and only focused upon uh, some unknown future events. And I find that not at all helpful or healthy. Um, I'm not going to go any further down that rabbit hole because... Um, that's not going to be very productive. I want to focus upon the book of Revelation this morning, and I'm going to give a bit of an introduction before the reading, because this book was intended by God through the Apostle John to be a book of encouragement, of hope, of comfort, of strength for his people in the middle of troubled, difficult times. That's the way it was intended originally. That's the way it's intended today. And that same message that the people in the first century received is the message that we need to take out of the book of Revelation. And, um, you know, that, I know when you look at the book of Revelation, uh, it, for many people it's a hard, hard thing because it, it's not written in the kind of language we're used to. It's apocalyptic language. It's the language of, of Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah with visions and uh, numbers and all kinds of things that are not familiar to us, but we're familiar to the first readers. Today, not so much. Maybe not at all. Now, you might ask, why didn't John just write straightforward? Because what he's proclaiming here in this book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's on the high throne. He deserves all of our allegiance and all of our worship, and we can find our strength and our comfort in Him as we go through whatever we're going through. Why didn't He just plain come right out and say that? Well, He's on the island of Patmos because of His preaching the gospel. And if He had written what this book really says, that Caesar, now I know He wouldn't use this word, but Caesar's an idiot. Uh, He's pretending to be what he's not. He's not God. He's not the Savior as he claims to be. He is not the high throne ruler. There is a higher throne, and that throne is occupied, and it's occupied by the Lord God himself. And Caesar is headed for destruction. Now, <laughs> if he had written that, it would have been a death sentence for him uh, for the authorities would get a hold of it. And furthermore, this letter to the churches would never have left the island. You think the censors would pass on to uh, 
a church and if the people got it on, on the mainland, they would also be killed for such seditious kind of thinking and, and words. So John writes in apocalyptic language that they would understand, and that's what, what he's saying in this book. Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings, and he deserves our full allegiance. You know, he's, when you think of, the, of that throne that's not empty because it's occupied by that Lord Jesus Christ, he's our supreme ruler, and our focus needs to be on that. And that's why it's so important for the church today, I think, to hear this word and focus our attention. John's not wringing his hands. They're facing trouble. They're facing persecution. They're fa facing economic uh, ruin, the Christians are. But their focus is to be on that higher throne. Ours as well, and we're going to go there now in Revelation chapter 7 after that introduction. I'm going to ask you to do something you probably don't usually do. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you can. Would you please stand for the reading? And I want you to know as I'm reading this that you are standing before the throne, just like those we're going to read about. Yes, it's future. Yes, it's past because the first readers were standing before the throne, but we also. And you're going to understand the stand part when I read this. Oh, by the way, throne is used in this book uh, 46 times. That ought to tell us something. 43 times it's for Christ and for God on the throne. And worship is used some 20 times. So that all comes together here in this seventh chapter, beginning at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And that includes us. We're in that number that he sees. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and strength. Thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, uh, who, who are they and where did they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, one of the, the confusing things about the book of Revelation is it's talking about, yes, future. It's talking about the past. It's talking about the present. And they're kind of all jumbled together. So when he's talking here about, yeah, one day we're going to stand before the throne. Well, the first readers of this standing here in these verses describe them. They describe us. Never again will they hunger. He shelters us with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. 
You may be seated. I had prepared an outline. I think it's in the bulletin that uh, you have. Uh, I, I just start off by saying we are living in the middle of difficult and troubled times. <laughs> uh, I don't have to say much more about that. You know all about it. Uh, it's true politically. It's true socially. It's true economically. It's true within the church. It's true. We are living in the middle of those kinds of times. Well, that's what they were living in in the first century. And they desperately needed to hear this word from God because in the middle of all that trouble and difficulty, there are all kinds of voices that you and I are hearing. And they're coming through social media, they're coming through political leaders, they're coming from uh, you know, fellow church members maybe, and, and, and there's, there's, there's all these voices. We need to hear the voice from the throne. We need to focus not on what the president says or what Putin is doing or whatever. Our focus needs to be on what is our Lord doing and saying to us of comfort and encouragement and strength and direction. So that's my thesis here for the sermon this morning. And it's that focus upon him as Lord on the high throne, the one who deserves all of our allegiance. I want to show you some four reasons why he deserves our full allegiance. First of all, he has a plan that will work out. Now, when there's a political leader, and we're hearing that from people in the primaries now, too, uh, one of the questions is asked by those who interview them, well, what's your plan? You know, what's your vision? And they begin to lay it out, and we become quite skeptical of some of those because we've heard them before, and we kind of shake our head and say, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. Huh. Well, God has a plan, and he doesn't have to get enough votes to enable that plan to be worked out. It will be accomplished. And his plan, well, he gives it to us. It's right here in the Word of God. He established it before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. And that plan then, looked, well, right away, it's sabotage. You know the attack of the devil and Adam and Eve and the fall. But that doesn't stop God's plan. It will be accomplished. And so you follow that plan throughout the scriptures. And finally, then Jesus Christ, we've been singing about him dying and rising again and ascending. That's part of God's plan. Then you get the, the church, the New Testament church, and that, that go through the plan. And I think uh, Eugene Peterson is right. The book of Revelation is a fitting conclusion to the Bible and to that whole unfolding of the plan of God because it all comes together and it's a summary, really, of that whole plan. One of the things, and some of you know this, when I was um, teaching Bible for a couple of years at Holland Christian, um, my, I started out teaching freshmen, and I loved that because we started out with Genesis. And the, the beautiful thing about Genesis is that it, it's the plan of God all the beginnings, all the beginnings. And I had some fun with, I think it's the 14th chapter of Genesis. There are three verses there. And one of my assignments to the kids was to say, why is that there? And I'm talking about that time when Abraham came back from rescuing Lot, and he meets this strange kind of character. He's the king of Salem. And it's recorded that he is the priest of, of God Most High. His name is Melchizedek. 
And in three verses, we see Abraham bowing down before him, offering offerings to him, receiving blessing from him, and that's it. Don't hear about him again. Well, for 2,000 years. <laughs> and, and in the book of Hebrews, he comes up again. And there, the church is being attacked again by the evil one. Many of the believers are Jewish Christians, and, and they believe that Jesus is their high priest. And the Jewish authorities that don't believe are saying to them, you're wrong. He can't be high priest. High priests have to come from Levi. Do you see a problem here? What tribe did Jesus descend from? Not from Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He's a descendant of David. He's from the tribe of Judah. And many believers were saying, we must have been wrong. I guess we've been misled. The writer of Hebrews picks up this three-verse thing from 2,000 years before, and he says, oh, no. Levi was in the loins, in the DNA of Abraham when he bowed down before Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, is a higher priesthood than Levi, and Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. I just love that. that just God's plan, anticipating 2,000 years what was needed. That's the kind of plan he has. Well, hurrying on, the second thing is he's clearly communicated that plan. Uh, leaders try to do that. They have their press secretaries. They have their uh, press releases. And sometimes they're, they're, the communication is confusing. And sometimes we say, I think that's just an outright lie, and, uh, and, and we're not clear at all what, what's being communicated. With God, it's not so. He clearly communicates his plan. At the time of the Reformation, uh, the big question was, should the people be given the Bible? Can they understand it? And some of the uh, authorities in the church were saying, no, we, we need to interpret it for them, so they ought not be able to read it on their own. The Reformers said, no, and they came up with a term, they called it the perspicuity of Scripture, a word we use every day, I know. Uh, but it just means it's clear. God's message is clear for those who are led by the Spirit as they read it. It's clear as you read it that uh, what we just even read here, that those who have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb, they are saved by His grace. You know, grace is free, but it's not it's not cheap. It costs God everything. It costs Him His Son. But you have to receive it. And that's the clear message of, of the Scriptures as you read, that God in His grace gives us salvation through Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, that whole message. One of my teachers, uh, his name is Harley Swiggum, probably not too many of you know who he is, um, he grew up in the church. He was a, um, in the military, stationed on an island out in the Pacific, and uh, bored out of his mind. 
his mother, I think it was his mother, had slipped a Bible into a suitcase, and he, he had kind of rejected the Christian faith uh, in his teen years, and, but he, he was so bored, he picked it up. And sitting out on a rock, uh, he said, I, I, I read through the Bible, and the Holy Spirit took those words and sunk them deep into his heart and mind. And he read it again from beginning to end. And he determined, I think he, he continued to read through the Bible, that when he got out of the military, he was going to go to seminary, and he's going to teach this. And that's how I met him. He was a pastor of education at Bethel Lutheran Church in Madison, Wisconsin. And some of you know, have heard of the Bethel Bible series. And he then took that plan that he had had so affected him, and he wrote it out in a whole series, and teaching people from Genesis through Revelation, that plan of God. And I myself have led hundreds of people through that whole journey through the Bethel Bible series. I would say hundreds of thousands and maybe millions have been influenced by that, but it's a clear plan that people can understand. Third thing, the reason why we owe him our allegiance and all of our worship, he continually is directing that plan for its success. He doesn't just say, well, here it is, now you go do it. He continues to be involved in the unfolding of that plan, continuing to give clear direction to those who are seeking him, and we follow that direction. And, and the beautiful thing is, John understands how God is doing that in his time, and he wants us to understand how God is doing that in our time. I, I mentioned that in teaching, I taught freshmen. I also taught juniors. Somebody else taught the uh, Gospels, so I had some of the Old Testament beginning at Genesis, and then I picked it up with the book of Acts. And again, I, I love teaching Acts to, to young people who, some of them were a little disillusioned with the church, to put it mildly. And when I told them we're going to be studying the church this semester, uh, that was greeted, of course, with lots of cheering and jumping up and down, yippee, yippee, no, groans, I heard groans. Uh, but when they got into the book of Acts and saw God's plan being unfolded and saw well, this amazing thing, in the seventh chapter, is, yeah, seventh chapter, the shining star evangelist of the church, Stephen, is stoned to death. And the persecution gets really bad. The very next verse tells us that they were scattered. All the believers are scattered throughout the world, and everywhere they went, they bring the gospel. Now, they, some of them go to Antioch, and you might remember that's where the people are first called Christians, in Antioch. And in Antioch, they also then determine that God wants this message delivered further out, and they send out missionaries. Remember who those missionaries are? Barnabas and Saul. Remember where you see Saul before? He's at the stoning of Stephen. That same verse that talks about his being stoned says that, that Stephen being stoned says that, that Saul is there, and he's giving assent, and he's supporting that, that killing, and, and then the next verse is going to tell how he goes on with persecuting believers, throwing them into prison. Well, in the meantime, then God gets a hold of him, converts him, 
And he has sent out, <laughs> I love this, from the very church that he helped establish by his evil destruction of the church. <laughs> now, what kind of God is this? But he can take the very worst that Satan throws at the church and turn it around to accomplish his plan. Oh, he's done it before. <laughs> Jesus, the cross, evil thinks it's one. Yay, he's dead. Oh, resurrection, ascension, sitting on the high throne. He does that, and he continues to do that. He continues to do that with his church. He wants us to know. He continues to do that in our individual lives. And that's the last point that I have. He's intimately involved in the lives of his people. For most of our leaders, I think we know we live in flyover country, and uh, they don't know us. Uh, they don't know what we're facing, and some of them don't seem to care. But with God, we're not in flyover country. There's no one who is too little or in too small a place for God not to be involved intimately in our lives. And you see that in this passage, too. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, and he will lead. He continues to do that. And I'm going to give you uh, just one more story. It's a personal story, and I don't tell it all that often. About halfway through my ministry, my family and I were attacked, uh, and it came straight from the pit of hell. And um, I don't go into too much detail on what that attack was because people can't believe it. They say that couldn't happen, uh, but it did, and it came even from within the church. And um, I told some pastors the full story, and they say, how did you survive that? How, and how is it that you're still in ministry after that kind of attack? And, and it's my testimony that out of that came that teaching that I've talked about. I stepped away from ministry in the church for a couple of years. But also out of that came the specialized transition ministry. I began to realize that other churches were facing things that were destructive or that were challenging or troubles that they could really use some, some help. And so the, I was the first uh, tra transition pastor. Uh, I think today, I've not counted, but I think we've probably had 60 or so. Uh, we have 30 currently uh, doing that work. And by my estimation, 10% of the Christian Reformed churches have had a transition pastor. And, uh, well, you're, you're, you're kind of blessed. You've had two, is Ron. <laughs> Ron Feinerweaver was here, and then I, I came in after him. But um, again, you see how God does that? Take something that was, now, there's no question in my mind it was just designed to destroy. But God had used it, he turned it. He does that, he wants you to know, he wants, I've heard some of your stories, some of your stories are like that. You've gone through a tough time, and, and yet God somehow has used that to be, make you a channel of his grace in situation after situation. That's our God. And so when you think of the one who sits on the higher throne, you know he, he's not 
in the troubles and the discouragements and the difficulties we face, he's not wringing his hands either and saying, oh, that's not the way it's supposed to go. He's got all power. Power, all power surely belongs to him. I said my last story. I'm going to throw another one in for free here. Um, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Soldiers are coming to arrest him. Peter rips out his sword, and Jesus says, put that thing away. Don't you know I could call to my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels? A a legion is, a full legion is 6,000 people. So you do the calculation. We got over over 70,000 angels that could have immediately come to his aid or your aid. Remember what one angel did when Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem? One angel in one night killed 185,000 of the strongest soldiers on earth. (laughs) Certainly he can shelter us under his wings and he can protect his people. So this whole book, this whole book is calling us, remember the one who sits on the throne. Focus on him. Devote your life to him. Serve him. Worship him. Worship is service. Service is worship. Live for him. There's no price too great to pay for you to live for him. And so that's the message, the encouragement here from Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to close with a challenge to you, and it's a challenge that you do something every day that focuses your attention, not on social media. Maybe it's your practice to go and look at that early in the day and read some emails. I kind of get caught up in that myself. But somehow, before that, focus your attention on the one who sits on the highest throne, the higher throne. And recognize that you are his child in his service. I have a couple ways of doing that. And I want to encourage, maybe saying the Lord's Prayer for you. You know, somewhere early in the day, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven with that understanding, and and by me too, Lord. And then conclude that, for, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That'll get you focused. Or maybe it's, um, I, I like St. Patrick's prayer. I step out of the shower with that awareness that I've been washed clean again by Jesus himself. And then pray St. Patrick's prayer, Christ above me, Lord on high. Christ before me, leading me. Christ beside me, as my companion. Christ behind me as my protector. He goes on in that way, and Christ within me. That, that makes a difference as you step out with that in the day. Maybe it's a psalm that's a favorite of yours. Maybe it's a song that you like. I've had a song, and I've got it here. I'll be reading. Just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's written by the Gettys, and it was written uh, almost 20 years ago. And Kristen Getty said this was their first hymn that they wrote, and I know you've sung in Christ Alone, and Uh, Christ Our Hope in Life and in Death, and some of their other songs as well. But this one is the inspiration for my title. I've listened to it several times a week for for months. And it's also based on Revelation 7. And you can Google it. You can go on YouTube and, and find it. 
This is it. There is a higher throne than all this world has known where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come before the sun we stand, made faultless through the Lamb. Believing hearts find promised grace. Salvation comes. Then she goes on with uh, hearing heaven's voices and the anthems and uh, uh, thundering, giving praise, all glory, wisdom, power, strength, thanks, and honor are to God our King who reigns on high forevermore. And uh, that's the focus, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful this morning that in a world of so much trouble and difficulty and and uh, people around us uh, losing heart in all kinds of ways and despair. Lord, thank you that you have given us clearer vision through some sometimes strange language and strange pictures, but always the same thing, that you are in control, that you are on the higher throne, the highest throne, that no matter who pretends that they've got the power, you have all power and all authority. And we can look in your plan and we can see how that's unfolded through the ages. We can share our stories with each other and hear how it continues to unfold today. So, Lord, continue to encourage us and help us to continue to give our whole focus and our whole worship to you, our Lord and our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a song that is going to be, our, we're going to be led to sing. It's um, one I hadn't really sung in quite a while, Steve. And I looked at that and I thought, now why in the world did he pick that song? You picked it, I'm assuming. Thank you. <laughs> because I got looking at this and I thought, this is, this is spirit-led. Spirit-led you. Uh, the words, by the way, the person who wrote this word, this song, wrote it over 100 years ago. She wanted to be a missionary uh, to Africa, but she couldn't raise enough money to go. And she's questioning God. God, I thought I was supposed to be a missionary. And she went home, and, she, and there's kind of a long story. You can go online, too, and find the whole story. But she began to meditate on that Jeremiah passage about the potter and the clay. And so she came up with this, you know, thou art the potter, I am the clay. And she yielded her life at that point fully in service and worship to her Lord wherever he wanted her. And she became a teacher in a missionary school. So instead of being one missionary going out, she was equipping lots of missionaries. And then toward the end of her life, the Lord did give her the desire of her heart, and she also got to go to Africa. So as you hear the words of this and sing the words of this song. Include yourself in that, okay? Yes, so let us stand together.